So for what might be obvious reasons, I need to start with a little bit of language housekeeping for this message. How many of you have seen this TV show on the screen? Okay, about half of you. So um, I first heard about this show actually watching Dan Levy, one of the co-creators of the show, being interviewed on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And the compromise, Stephen explained, from CBS, the network, was that they could say the name of the show as long as it was being printed on a screen at the same time <laughs> as they were saying it. So if it's good enough for network TV, I think it's good enough for us. So that's what I'm going to go for. This is a little tiny Canadian show produced and made in Canada by Canadian actors called Schitt's Creek. And I first started watching it, like I said, earlier this year, actually at the same time as I was home recuperating from a broken foot. Many of you were here. You remember the boot that I wore for about eight weeks. The first week of January, the second day of a week of vacation, I stepped off of a curb wrong. This is the kind of injury you get in your 30s, I'm learning. And I broke a little bone in the midsection of my foot. And it put me out of commission for a while. I had a lot of time that I was supposed to be lying on the couch at home with my leg elevated. And so I started digging into some of these shows that I'd heard about that people had been asking, hey, have you seen this? Are you watching this? It's a pretty good program. So I decided to give this show a try. And it turns out over the two months that I was recuperating, I worked my way through all five seasons of it. Now, I am strangely not a big fiction person. Some of you know this about me. I watch documentaries. I watch reality television. I have six bookshelves at home, and half of one shelf is fiction. It's kind of a strange quality, I realize, but it's true. But a weird thing happened with this show. Fictional though it is, I found myself thinking about the characters in my day-to-day -day life. I would be in the car driving somewhere, and I'd go, gosh, I wonder what's going to happen with Stevie and David. <laughs> or, gosh, should Alexis stick with Ted, or should she be with Mutt? I can't decide. They're both good. Jocelyn is so nice to Moira, but why? Moira's so mean and weird to her. And I started thinking to myself, why am I worrying about these people? They're not even real. I actually said to Reverend Ken at one point, who does love fiction, who loves movies, as you all know, is this why people like this stuff? <laughs> I feel like they're my friends. So somehow this show wound its way into my heart. And there is so much that I could talk about, including the fact that, as I said before, the co-creating team of this television program is a father-son duo, one of whom you might know even if you have seen this show, Eugene Levy, the great comedic actor. He's in American Pie, which a lot of people know him from, but he's also in all of the Christopher Guest movies. If you've seen Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, he's a legend. He and his son, Dan Levy, not only prove that there is a code on the human genome for eyebrows, <laughs> but also work together in Dan Levy's real first project of creating a TV show together. But ultimately, the thing that I want to focus on today has to do with family, but it's the story that we see played out over these five seasons in this show. It is the interplay between these four people, this family here, the Rose family. 
and the community around them in this little town of Schitt's Creek. Now, it's easy to catch you up. The whole premise of this show is told in the first minute of it. Right at the beginning of the pilot, we watch the Rose family lose everything that they have. Johnny Rose, the patriarch of this family, has amassed an empire with the Rose video store chain. And this self-made wealth that he has has them living very large, but it turns out they hired a shifty business manager who had been pocketing all their tax payments for himself. And so when the IRS comes knocking, they are forced to give up pretty much everything that they own, repossessed by the government. They are, however, out of some kindness, some bureaucratic kindness, allowed to retain one single asset. In 1991, Johnny Rose bought the deed to a small town for his son David as a joke. And they can live in this small town, the IRS agent says, for practically nothing until they get back on their feet. And so with nothing but suitcases packed full of their designer wardrobes and wig collections and handbags and shoes, they move to this little town of Schitt's Creek, and we basically spend all of the next five seasons watching them try to figure out what the hell to do next. (laughs) Now, this town and the people in it could easily be played for laughs. And I was worried about that. I was wary as I started watching with this premise, wondering if this would end up being really a classist send-up, right, of these small-town yokels, these natural enemies of the wealthy, cultured, successful family. And early on, we do see the roses and the residents of this town run headfirst into some of their stereotypes of each other. But it's not too long before those stereotypes start to dissolve in the face of the real people in front of them. And if anything, it's the Rose's ridiculousness that gets played for laughs in this show. But over time, even they soften. They soften out of the caricatures that we are first introduced to. They soften into friends and neighbors and eventually even family of the people in this small town. The critics and the reviewers have talked about a couple reasons why this show is sort of remarkable. And one of them, I'm actually not going to spend most of my time on today, but I think it really deserves mention. It's the way that this TV show has an unremarkable and totally normalized portrayal of a variety of different queer relationships, of LGBTQ people and how they know each other and form relationships and date and break up and fall in love. It was actually one of the few things that Dan Levy says he chose to make a political stand on when making the show, that he didn't want to portray hate or homophobia in this town. Because he says even if you portray both sides, someone watching is going to side with the side I don't want them to. Someone watching is going to see themselves more in that side of fear or hate. And I don't want to give that any voice in a show that I make. This month in particular, this month that we celebrate Pride, this year that we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the riots at Stonewall in New York City, 
I think it is a wonderfully defiant and hopeful way to portray LGBTQ people and relationships in our culture. But the other reason that this show is surprising is that the longer we watch, the more we see that this story is not just a rehashing of Zsa Zsa Gabor and Green Acres, right? It's not just a fish-out-of-water story that we've all heard before. It is actually a story about the glacial, jello-like, honest, awkward pace of connection. It is one of the most honest and realistic stories I've seen of people who are detached from themselves and each other slowly and painstakingly, humbly, finding their way into real human relationships. It is the story of how changes in our hearts really take place when it's not fixed into a half hour or an hour arc. One of those reviewers put it perfectly, I thought, by saying that the Rose family's particular dysfunction is that they've spent a lifetime using wealth as a substitute for intimacy. A lifetime using wealth as a substitute for intimacy. These people may be family, but in the beginning they hardly know each other and they hardly know themselves. And when they lose that wealth, that money, suddenly we see that that was their security blanket all along. The thing that kept them safe and detached. And it has been ripped off in one fell swoop. And yet instead of going tragic with that scenario, we watch them move gradually towards growth and messiness and a beautiful kind of fumbling towards new life. Now, most of us carry some sort of security blanket to get through this life. It's normal. It's natural. The world is not always easy, and it can be scary. And we know, we talk here at Wellsprings all the time. It's in our core commitments and beliefs here how a growing and honest spiritual life requires us to drop that security every now and then. It requires us to get in honest contact with what is really happening in our lives. Now, the Rose's security blanket was wealth, but for some of us, it is a role we play or an image we have of ourselves. For some of us, it is work. For some of us, it's a belief that we can always fix things, that everything would fall apart if we weren't there. We have all kinds of security blankets. But whatever they might be for us, we all also have experiences at some point in our lives where that security is stripped away and we are forced to adjust. You may not know Now, when I broke my foot this January, that was the first issue or injury to my health of any kind that I've experienced since kindergarten. That's an incredible privilege. I am very lucky to have been healthy for so much of my life and lucky that the thing that finally shattered that was a relatively small thing. 
But still, maybe because I'd had that uninterrupted 30 years or so of privilege, it was a humbling adjustment for me, still. With just that one tiny little stupid bone fractured in my foot, I needed to ask for a lot of help. I needed to ask for some grace here at Wellsprings to miss some meetings, to be late at a few things. I needed help getting my groceries up three flights of stairs to my apartment. I needed help doing my laundry, which was in the basement. I needed help carrying anything that was heavy, shopping for basic necessities, many times getting rides to the places that I needed and wanted to be. It was an inconvenience, of course, but that wasn't the biggest issue, right? I could project manage my way out of the logistics of it all. What was really challenging for me was that I had to let people in. In many cases, to my home, to my routines. I had to risk relying on other people to take care of me. And not doing that had been one of my most long-standing security blankets. Something else you might not know is that when I was about nine years old, two things happened in my family. One is that my parents got divorced. That you might know. The other is that my mom received a medical diagnosis that put her out of work and for a few years made her truly unable to leave the house. I was an only child, I still am. And I had to ask as a kid for so much help. The school bus took care of rides to school, right? But pretty much for anything else in a sprawling suburb with no public transit, with no other family around, I relied on other people. If I wanted to see a friend as a kid, their parents always had to pick me up and drive me home, which, you know, as a parent, is easy the first couple times, but eventually gets tiring. (laughs) If I wanted to go to a movie, if I wanted to go to the mall as a tween, I was always asking someone else for a favor to make that happen. I felt like just to get my needs met, I had to inconvenience someone. And I hated it. It was so vulnerable and I was so ashamed that my family couldn't just take care of itself like it seemed every other family around me in the suburbs seemed to be doing. Now I'm older now. And I know a little better. How many of your families always have it all under control and are always able to take care of themselves? Of course, I know that now, but I didn't know it then. I was just a kid. So, of course, I showed up at the DMV on the first day I was eligible for my learner's permit. And I carried that security blanket with me that I could now take care of myself from the day I turned 16 forward. 
I was on a mission, in fact, to pay it forward, which in some ways was really a beautiful and a healthy impulse, of course, right? I was now the one that would give my friends a ride anywhere they needed to go. I was the driver for the long road trips to the shore. I'd make the rounds after a late night study session or a rehearsal like a carpool mom dropping everybody else off. But while I was busy recirculating all that good karma, I was also solidifying something that wasn't so good for me. An idea that now I needed to take care of myself. That I had used up all of that goodwill and that I was now the person who would help others because I never wanted to be a burden or an inconvenience again. There is a phrase going around these days. It's sort of a contrast, a corrective maybe, to another phrase that we hear a lot, self-care. Self-care is necessary and wonderful, right? It's the first step, I think, to acknowledge that there are times when the responsibility is on us to make some room in our lives to prioritize the things that renew us and make us feel good and recharged and rested. But more and more... There are activists and writers and thinkers who are starting to talk about something called community care. Community care reminds us that we are not made to rely only on ourselves. It's not how we live. This woman, Nikita Valerio, she is a community organizer and a researcher. And she writes on this subject and speaks about it. She says community care can look like a lot of different things. It can be simple. It can be reaching out to somebody over text when you just need someone to talk. It can be someone grabbing groceries for you when it is a little hard for you to do it for some reason. It can be somebody coming over and doing your dishes and watching your kids while you are ill or injured or grieving. In her work, she compares community care to an extended family, where members of the family are intimately connected to and routinely performing acts of kindness and compassion for each other. It makes sense as a metaphor, but it is not what all of our experiences of family have been. Some of us don't have that model of care as the norm that is in our bones. And so it's not easy when we face even just the little mundane challenges in life to let people in, to let people into our homes and our routines, to ask for help freely and joyfully giving and receiving it. It can be more complicated for some of us. We all deserve that, but it is not what we all experience in this life which is why something that is so important to me about what we do here and what we can do in our world is that we are able to build other communities of care. Our churches are an example of community care. And our neighborhoods and our schools can be. And our country can be. When we organize and participate in these networks of care, that is part of how we heal what's broken. 
the Rose family certainly didn't live with that kind of an experience of community care. In fact, everything, every sort of care that they had ever received in their lives, they had paid for. So when that was torn away from them, they had no idea how to care for each other or how to be cared for by the people in this little town. The show's co-creator, Dan Levy, he says, ultimately this is a show, not about the town and the family's background and how those things come into odds with each other. Ultimately, it's a show about people who didn't even know what love was, slowly learning what it means to love each other. And it's true, that slow part. Like I said, the character development on this show is so gradual that he says, in season three, you can have a tearjerker moment just by having one of these characters show some genuine human emotion to another one. Which is to say it's pretty honest to how long and incremental the process of our own growth is here in real life. We get the gift of watching these characters do this for and with each other, step by step, sweet and silly, vulnerable and messy in this work of reconnecting. And the most beautiful and hopeful element of fiction, I think, in this show is that without being saccharine, we begin to realize that this town with this offensive name that was literally laughed at by this family is a genuine community of care. In this fiction, it's not a utopia. Don't get me wrong. It's not a fantasy world. This town doesn't magically exist in a world without any risk. In the very first episode, David, the son in the family who's openly pansexual, he gets invited to a tailgate party And he says, no, thank you. I'm not in the mood to be victim of a hate crime tonight. (laughs) But he ends up going. And he has fun. And what's amazing is that in this little town, every time a character takes a risk like that, every time a character opens themselves up, their vulnerability is rewarded. That is the magical fiction of what we get to see and experience in this show. When Johnny and Moira finally give up on their last hackneyed attempt at a financial comeback, they decide to partner with Stevie, the owner of the motel that they've been staying in. And that risk is richly rewarded. Stevie becomes like a daughter to them. She visits Johnny in the hospital when he gets sick. She is comforted by him when her heart is broken. And together they win a HOSPI, a regional hospitality award for best customer service in a motel under 20 units. (laughs) When the Rose's daughter, Alexis, decides that since she has nothing else to do, she might as well go back to school and get her high school diploma at age 25. She worries as soon as she realizes there's a whole classroom now full of teenage girls passing notes about her, and she has all these flashbacks and all these fears of what that's about. And when she finally confronts them, it turns out all the notes are full of compliments and admiration for how cool she is. 
when Patrick is in the process of coming out, the one moment I think I feared that the other shoe would drop on this show, we find out that he hasn't told his parents yet, and they've been accidentally invited to a party with him and his boyfriend. And when he tells them, the shock on their faces is all about what did we do wrong that you didn't think you could tell us? We keep waiting for the other shoe to drop, but in this little town, in this community of care, it never does. It gives us a vision over and over of a better kind of experience than we might expect in this world. And each time they open themselves up, they learn again a little bit more of what it's like to be cared for. They see that instead of protecting ourselves with our image or our wealth, our effectiveness, or our ability to take care of it all for ourselves, they see that this mortifying, humiliating, honest experience of being fully seen and loved can be so very sweet. They remind me that healing is not a project that we can take care of all on our own but that healing always happens with the help of a community. We have a lot of things to heal in this world. We all have our small things. We all have our personal things and our family things. And we have some really big things. So many of our security blankets are being pulled back right now. For some of us as men for some of us as white people, for all of us as Americans. One way or another, we are all being asked to get into some honest contact right now with our lives and the world around us, and we are all being forced to adjust. One of our four parents, one of the earliest Unitarian preachers in America, was a man named William Ellery Channing. And he very succinctly defined our faith by saying, I am a living member of the great family of all souls. This idea of family being bigger than our biological families, that idea has always been a part of the path to salvation in our tradition. And one of my favorite UU preachers alive today, my good friend Elizabeth Wynn, she says, you have to remember that there is a thing that happens for so many of us, that some things are news and other things are family. For some of us, increased Islamophobia is news. For some of us, increased immigration and customs enforcement or surveillance of activists and journalists, or stop-and-frisk policies, or policies around addiction and treatment, or issues, or headlines. And for some of us, it's family. We may not live exactly in that fictional world that we hope for, where every need we express is met with care but we help to create our world. 
and we can help create one like that. In fact, by being here, all of you are already nudging yourselves in that direction into deeper communion and connection with each other by being here. If anyone could ultimately walk through those doors and become one of us, then that line between us and them is blurry. And we practice that here every week. The questions about who we care for and why we care for them emerge from that uncomfortable fuzziness. They are fraught and they are humbling and they are never clear or easy, but they are really good for us. They're good for our hearts and they are faithful. My friend Elizabeth says, as Unitarian Universalists, we live our values and we do it because they're morally right, but also because we know that we are family and we are going to fight for each other like family. Because in the end, if we believe our words about interdependence and connection, about universalism and all of us needing all of us, then then we actually are family. Amen. Amen. And may you all live in blessing. I invite you to pray with me. God of our hearts, great mystery and creative force in this universe that somehow speaks to each of us in our own language. May we trust that the spaces in our lives that are broken or hurting, where we have an emptiness or a crack, can be filled. May we allow a little bit of room without knowing how or from where. But may we simply open ourselves up to the possibility that help may be coming. And that by showing our cracks and our broken places as much as we can in as slow and tiny a way as we might try, we begin that process of inviting grace and love into our lives. For these prayers I've spoken and for all the prayers carried on the hearts of all the people in this room today, we say amen.